This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's going on, Bible nerds? We're talking about Acts 14 today, so let's take a closer look. Well, not quite. we got to finish chapter 13 first. Um, did we not finish chapter 13? No. we only. Oh, did, we didn't. I'm sorry. No, we only did the first part, uh, the first 12 verses. So, last week you have Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus, and you have the quote-unquote battle against Bar-Jesus. Um then they begin to be on the move. And what you're going to see, we're going to skip a lot of this because it's a lot of repetitive things about them moving around and giving you the model of how they're going about doing this. But they're going to these different cities and they're going into the synagogues. Okay, so what you have to understand about the Jewish world, remember all these people are Jews, First and foremost, they are Jews. And so they are still following all of the Jewish customs. And so there's only one temple, correct? Mm -hmm. Where's that temple? Jerusalem. So what do you do if you're a Jew that doesn't live in Jerusalem? How do you worship? Don't know. In a synagogue. Okay. Um, These are like many places of worship that are in different cities. And there were rules about how many Jewish men you had to have in a city in order to be eligible for a synagogue in a Roman area. Mm. So like, for instance, in Acts chapter 16, we're in 13 now, in Acts chapter 16, Paul's going to go to a town called Philippi. And he's going to show up what the text calls a place of prayer in which he's going to meet nothing but women. Okay. They're there because they're, even though there's enough of them to have a synagogue, because there's no men with them, they can't have one. Okay. You see? Mm -hmm. So they continue to go to the synagogues where these Jewish people are, and they go on the Sabbath. So they, and... Like, you got to think, the Sabbath is Saturday. It's like our Sunday. We do all the church things on that day. But theirs looks a lot different because it's a very interactive thing. They're not ending up at the local Mexican food restaurant afterward. Uh, Well, no, but they, yeah, they would eat together and things like that. But more so what I mean is it's definitely not a performance. Mm -hmm. It's an interactive, like any Jewish man can participate, all of these types of things. And so they go in and they sit down and eventually Paul stands up in synagogue and they're in uh, Pisidia. When Paul stands up, he begins to speak, and this is his first thing he says. You Israelites and others who fear God, listen. Okay, Clayton, remember how I told you about this group of people called the God-fearers? Yeah. Who are they? They are Gentiles who ascribe to the Jewish faith. Yeah, they're Gentiles who have been like accepted in, and they do everything the Israelites require of them. Mm-hmm. You Israelites and others who fear God. Yeah. So clearly there are both Jews and Gentiles in this room. Sure. Okay. Listen. And what does he do? He spends the next 
many, many verses telling a very, very, very beautiful version of Israel's history and how Jesus fits into it and what that means for them today. It may be one of the most beautiful, like concise stories of Israel hmm. in that section. If you're ever, if you're ever looking for, like, what is the message of the Bible? That one, like that, summarizes it pretty darn well, holistically. It even includes how Jesus fits into it, all of these things, and so he stands up and says all of this, and. The people are like fascinated by his rhetoric and the things that he says. So much so that the text says in verse 43, when the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, God-fearers, followed Paul and Barnabas. So, now remember, the Jews don't like the message that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. Mm -hmm. It's not Judaism. Yeah. Or at least not the way they read it. And so, uh, the Jews show up, like, think outside the church doors, right? And then the Jews walk up to them to engage them. The Jews, the text says that uh, they're filled with jealousy and blaspheme, and they contradicted what Paul had spoken. So clearly they're in some kind of public debate here mm -hmm. is what's happening. And this is what the text says in verse 46. Then both Paul and Barnabas spoke, spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, since you reject it and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. We are now turning to the Gentiles. Mm. And Paul says... For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles, uh, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Yeah. What do you think the ends of the earth means, Clayton? So in an ancient context, it would be the ends of the known world at the time. Yeah. And what do you like? What do you think Luke is trying to communicate? What do you think Paul is trying to communicate? That it's everybody? Everything, everything that exists. Yeah, and everybody? Yeah. Okay. That's what I think, too. So, what you have here is you have the transition moment in Paul's life. Mm -hmm. The moment where he says, screw it, I'm going to the Gentiles. Yeah. That's really where this begins to happen. Now, Paul continues to go to synagogues and meet people that are Jews. Yeah. But he very much so also gets wrapped up in the God-fears and the Gentile element of this. So, when he says that, verse 48, the Gentiles heard this. The others of society, the others of the Jewish culture, mm. when they heard this, and what did they hear? What did Paul say? That they, the others, deserve liberation. Yeah. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and praised the word of the Lord. When they were glad, they rejoiced and praised the Lord. Mm -hmm. Because of liberation. In the name of Jesus. 
I think it's interesting, though, that it says when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, not the Jews. Well, yeah, because Paul said Paul said that we're going to the Gentiles. Yeah. It, it was a message to the other. Yeah. Yeah, the oppressor doesn't like that message. Yeah. I would imagine so. And that's evidenced by verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of the city and stirred up perse- uh, the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. Get out of here. Get out mm-hmm. of here. So they go on to the next place. And they go into another Jewish synagogue and they speak to both Jews and Greeks and they both become believers. They both begin to believe the message of Jesus. And so Paul continues to go on the move with Barnabas. And they end up in Lystra. And there's a man there. Lystra seems to be um, a Gentile region because they end up speaking a different language. He listens. There's a, a man there that's lame. He can't use his feet. And he listens to Paul speaking. And then you get Paul looking at him, quote unquote, intently. That same word from uh, the other day with Bar Jesus. Looks at him intently and says, Get up. Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. That's what the text says. And so then in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. And they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. Mm-hmm. Um, this shows you how enchanted the ancient world was. Yeah. So different than today, right? We get a room of 400 people at Bethel Church reporting a miracle, and nobody believes them. Yeah. These people see miracles happen, and they start worshiping humans as gods. Mm-hmm. Just in Well, entire, and, and specific gods. For they some give reason, them names. Yeah, for some reason, they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Yeah. Right? So Zeus, the chief of the the Greek pantheon and Aramis is like one of the sons. Right. So also again another one of those power metaphors of Barnabas being lower on the totem pole and being at the top whether as whereas Paul is on the lower side of that. Well, and you're about to see it you're about to see that power metaphor inverted even more explicitly. Mm. Um so This ancient world is so enchanted, so divinized, that when this happens, these Gentiles begin to worship them. Mm -hmm. Now, in the same way, what, what what happens in today's world when pastors or preachers are worshiped? All kinds of terrible, all heinous kinds of things. Awful things. All kinds of heinous, abusive power things. Yeah. I think that's why... Verse 14 of chapter 14 exists. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, heard that they were doing this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? 
We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news. Good news of liberation. And then they have this whole thing about them being caught up in idols and that being an image of God, which you know is limiting to an all-powerful, liberating God. Mm-hmm. And so they begin to try to work through this. And the text says in verse 18, they, so they're trying to hold them off. Don't yeah. worship us. This is not what we came here for. Mm-hmm. They do not want the power. Yeah. Throughout all of this, you're fixing to see power metaphors like through the roof. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Wow. Big. Big. Like these people are so bought in that they want to worship. Now, I want to say, they're meeting people in a context. Yeah. And sometimes the way they respond in that is not always going to be the way you want them to right away. Sure. Right? And so the first thing they do is they tear their robes, not in shows of anger, but in shows of remorse. Mm -hmm. Because then the first things out of their mouth is, friends, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. Like, this is not the good news. It's not, we shouldn't be, there should be no power between us. We are mortals just like you. We are not the focus. Correct. But the Jews, verse 19 But Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. Then they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So once again, you see Paul pushing off power. And you see the Jews using power. Stoning, using violence. Paul is healing. The Jews are committing acts of violence. Yeah. Do you see the the two systems at play here? So they return to Antioch. And the text says in verse 22 there they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, It is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. It is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. Clayton, what do you think that means? I think I think that plays into what Paul ends up saying later in some of his later letters about suffering with Christ. Like Jesus himself was crucified we now are persecuted to usher in the kingdom of heaven, right? To usher in this this newness of life. We have to take on this burden. So why is suffering the way in which we do that? Because Jesus suffered. And why did Jesus suffer? For us. He did. More so what I'm trying to get you to say is that Jesus suffered and we're supposed to suffer because if there's one thing that I am now 100% confident of, 
is that this book is against power. Mm. Every time people get too powerful, this book slash God smacks them down. Jesus, our liberating king, died in the ancient world's version of the electric chair. Yeah. Humiliating death. This book is against power. And so what's the ancient world's version of the opposite of power? Suffering. I don't think it's necessarily this call that you must suffer in order to be like working towards the kingdom of God. But I do think it means that in order to be working towards the kingdom of God, you have to be anti-power. I think I agree with that. I think there is suffering that comes in that. How so? Yeah, I, I agree with you, but how so? Yeah, I think... How, the, so for, how so for the average listener here? The average listener, I think there is suffering and that the average listener has elements of being oppressed. I think that there is elements of the average listener who looks like us straight white males who come from a upper middle class family that are Christians. If they're listening to this already, they already understand that the, the people that are being oppressed, that sucks. And there's lament and there's suffering that comes with that. Yeah. I don't, I actually disagree with you. I don't think people that look like us experience persecution at all. I'm not saying that it's persecution. Uh, I'm saying that there is suffering and watching that happen. Well, but I don't, but not suffering in the way that the book of Acts is using it. Maybe suffering in the way that Lamentations or other Mm. Lament Psalms are using it. It, Suffering in light of the experience of death, maybe like the way the book of Job uses it. Yeah, Some way like that. The way in which they're using it is suffering is the opposite power metaphor to power and like privilege. Um, We don't have that. You have to remember the ancient world, Christianity arises as a religion of oppressed and persecuted people. Mm -hmm. In in the era of Constantine, around the 300s of the ancient world, Constantine is uh, a political, like the major world power. Constantine adopts Christianity and mm-hmm. that sets a trajectory for Christianity that it, it will forever be, from that moment on, marked by power. Right. Less than 700 years later, we have the Crusades. Mm-hmm. We have two, we have one major split in the church by then. Mm-hmm. Like, forever, the church is marred by power. Yeah. Because of Constantine. And so because of that, I don't think that the average person experienced suffering in the way that Paul's talking about it here. That's not to minimize the other element and use of the word suffering in the biblical idea, Mm -hmm. but not the way the book of Acts is using it. Fair enough. So I think what we take away from this is, is that suffering is the metaphorical image through which we embody the Beatitudes. Hmm. Suffering is the metaphorical image by which we say this is a message of love. This is a message of liberation. Uh, what, is, what does Jesus say? This is one of my favorite things that Jesus ever says. Um, this is in Luke chapter 4, one of the first things Jesus ever preaches in his hometown synagogue in the book of Luke. 
This is what he says. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. When he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, just like we saw Paul and Barnabas just do, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. If you wanted to know what the message of Jesus is, if you wanted to know what the message of suffering in the book of Acts and the all of the ideas of the equality and universality of the Holy Spirit that's being communicated in the book of Acts, it's that. Yeah. It's that message.